Hello, and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley, and thanks for listening to my podcast. We're going to be tackling several issues in this episode, so let's start with the embattled governor of New York State, Andrew Cuomo. A damning report by the New York State Attorney General concluded that he sexually harassed 11 women and created a hostile work environment for women generally. Attorney General Letitia James's report has created a firestorm around Cuomo. A good number of elected officials, labor and civil rights activists, many former allies have all called for his resignation. Now this is really, really interesting because Cuomo had managed to make alliances with a broad spectrum of people in the civil rights movement, in the labor movement, and now to a person, they have all called for his resignation. President Joe Biden has called for his resignation. As of this episode, Cuomo has resisted those calls, although that could change at any moment. What's interesting to me is that he has doubled down now more than once in trying to refute the allegations of these women and the conclusions of the report. This is especially true now in terms of the changes that could happen as the state legislature has committed to moving forward with impeachment as early as next week. The report paints a picture of an imperial governor given to fits of temper, as well as an extraordinary ability to make women profoundly uncomfortable with comments, gestures, and yes, even touching. These incidents were swept under the rug, overlooked, or not even reported by women who feared Cuomo's wrath. Bullying, intimidation, and fear seemed to be the order of the day. In response, Cuomo's office issued an 85-page rebuttal, complete with his hugging and kissing men and women, young and old. It hasn't seemed to help matters much and may have made things even worse. If that's true, it marks a major miscalculation on the part of the governor who made his reputation in part by being politically savvy. You have to ask yourself, why would a politically savvy governor facing this kind of firestorm turn around and make it seem as though he's blameless in all this? Because that's what this rebuttal seems to be trying to make him. Blameless. A guy who just hugs and kisses, etc., as part of his public persona. Now, the part that they really can't, and the part that he really can't refute is this notion that he can be given to fits of temper, given to fits of rage uh, in terms of his immediate staff and the actually extended staff and the media. Because if you cross Andrew Cuomo and you cover the state capital, Albany, you got a serious, serious problem on your hands. Keep in mind, the Cuomo saga isn't just ricocheting in New York State, but across the nation. As a major adversary of former President Trump, his fall from grace is a godsend for Trump supporters everywhere. Yet there is one thing about this probe and the report that they overlook. Letitia James is a Democrat, as is Cuomo. Can anyone imagine such a report on any Republican politician being done and led by a fellow Republican? Didn't think so. But the real question here 
is where does Andrew Cuomo go? I really thought in my heart of hearts that he wouldn't last this long. I thought he'd resign before possibly facing impeachment. I still could be right, yet several people who know Cuomo better than I think he'll hold out as long as he possibly can. They say this even as some of his closest political and personal allies, as I mentioned earlier, have backed away from him. Not only that, some of the aides closest to him who enabled this behavior may face political consequences further down the road. And I'm talking specifically uh, about his closest aide, Melissa DeRosa, who is all in, I think she's mentioned like 187 times in this report. So there is that fallout, uh, the collateral damage that may happen in the wake of all this. Some of those people are alleged to have attempted to damage the reputations of accusers. Now, this is a little inside baseball, I think, for some people, but there have been reports and allegations that one of the accusers, uh, who was an aide to Cuomo, actually had her personnel file pulled by people inside what they call the second floor, which is the executive chamber in Albany, and attempted to try and share that negative information with reporters off the record. Uh, to their credit, several reporters and several publications refused to accept the information uh, unless it was on the record. And as it turned out, uh, that particular area of defense did not, in fact, take place. Now, one thing you have to conclude about this, and there are several conclusions you can draw from it, but one, this behavior and way of doing things did not start recently. The man has been in office for better than three terms, and he may be looking for a fourth. Can he? Should he run for a fourth term? The obvious answers are no and no. Yet Andrew Cuomo is nothing if not tenacious. Two, and this is something we really need to think about as voters. Is this really the kind of government we want? Not just a sexual thing, but a government ruled by fear and intimidation. Why do we elect people who govern like this? Is it that the public doesn't know about this kind of behavior because the media doesn't tell them? To top things off, there's now word that one of his accusers has sworn out a criminal complaint against Andrew Cuomo in Albany, the state capitol. She alleges forcible touching, which is a misdemeanor punishable by a maximum year in prison. That may just be the tip of the iceberg, and I mean the tip of the iceberg as there may be others who may file either criminal or civil charges against the standing governor of New York State. I will stand by my first political instinct on this. It may take longer than I thought, but Andrew Cuomo still facing impeachment proceedings and multiple investigations of his conduct, I believe, will step down as governor of the state of New York. But you know, as long as we're talking about governors, Let's talk about the governor of Missouri, Mike Parson. He just pardoned a couple who brandished guns at peaceful protesters last year in St. Louis, Missouri. Mark and Patricia McCloskey pleaded guilty to firearms charges 
after the incident on June 28th of last year. The protesters were actually heading toward the home of St. Louis's mayor as part of a protest in the wake of the killing of George Floyd. Needless to say, the photos of the couple garnered national attention with, of course, messages of support coming from, among others, Donald Trump. They've become minor celebrities with Mark McCluskey announcing he's running for one of Missouri's Senate seats, U.S. Senate seats, as well as an appearance at last year's Republican National Convention. There appears to be little evidence that the protesters were aiming their ire at the couple or that they acted violently. Yet they said they feared for their lives, did the McCluskeys, and Parson, the governor, apparently bought into it. Yet while Parson saw fit to pardon the gun-toting McCluskeys, he apparently did have time, did not have time, that is, to pardon two black men, Kevin Strickland and Lamar Johnson. Johnson is serving a life sentence after a 1995 murder conviction that prosecutors now say was rife with misconduct and fabrications on the part of both the police and the prosecutors at the time. Strickland was also convicted of murder and is facing life in prison even after the key witness in his case recanted her testimony. That's right, recanted her testimony. Needless to say, Parsons' priorities as governor in these cases has brought him a great deal of criticism from black elected officials as well as the Ethical Society of Police, an organization founded by black officers in St. Louis. And again, I come back to the same question. How do we elect people like this to govern us? Whether it's Andrew Cuomo, whether it's this guy Parson, whoever, why are these people allowed? And there are others, okay? We can talk about a bunch of other people. But we ought to be clear about one thing. Misconduct and malfeasance in office is not the sole province of governors, senators, congresspeople, or presidents, nor is it limited to one political party or another. The moral of both of these stories is this. And I, when I say both, I'm talking about both Andrew Cuomo and Mike Parson. The moral is choose wisely. When we come back, a Democratic primary in Ohio divides voters and even the Congressional Black Caucus ended up taking sides. How did it turn out? Stay with us. This is The Intersection. Hey, what up, y'all? It's your boy Fab Five Freddy, and I'm live and direct, home in Harlem, tuned in to my main man, dropping all his great information. Mark Riley, The Intersection is live, y'all. Tune in. Welcome back to The Intersection. First, some parameters. Ohio's 11th Congressional District stretches from Cleveland to Akron and is a reliably Democratic stronghold. Its previous congressperson, Marcia Fudge, resigned to become Housing Secretary in the Biden administration. Two major candidates contested the special election to take her place. And here is where the fissure in black politics rears its head yet again. We've talked about this in previous episodes, and my personal experience with it goes back at least to 2016. In this case, 
The combatants are former state Senator Nina Turner, representing the progressive wing, and Chantel Brown, a Cuyahoga County Council member. Turner is an outspoken supporter of Bernie Sanders and was the early favorite. Brown, however, was bolstered by support from several members of the Congressional Black Caucus, particularly senior members of the Congressional Black Caucus, and campaigned on being supportive of President Joe Biden. In other words, a classic moderate versus progressive battle. Turner said last year that voting for Joe Biden was like supporting a piece of excrement. And I'm wondering whether or not that one particular statement may have come back to haunt her. Obviously, those were not exactly words that endeared her to moderates in the Congressional Black Caucus. She also criticized South Carolina Congressman Jim Clyburn for not getting enough from Biden in exchange for his support, which proved to be a game changer. And so the battle was joined. Black moderate versus fire-breathing progressive. Turner was thought to have the early advantage, certainly in name recognition. Both sides and their surrogates spent good money on the race. In total, over $7 million was the combined sum spent. Yet when it was said and done, it was another victory for moderates in the Democratic Party. Brown beat Turner by five and a half percentage points. So what does this all mean? Keep in mind that just three years ago, progressives appeared to be in ascendance within the Democratic Party. The shock election of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York and others back in 2018 seemed like the dawn of a new day. Yet in politics, and anybody who follows it closely will tell you this in a hot minute, nothing, repeat, nothing is set in stone. Some may remember that Joe Biden was sitting in fourth place among Democratic contenders last year going into the South Carolina primary. Then Jim Clyburn endorsed him, and the rest is history. And Jim Clyburn endorsing Biden was a moderate-to-moderate moderate endorsement. And black voters in South Carolina listen, even now, to Jim Clyburn. We've also seen a moderate candidate, Eric Adams, win a hotly contested New York City mayoral primary. Eric Adams is an ex-cop, and he won against several progressive opponents. This back and forth between progressive and moderates of the same party has the potential to be healthy if there's mutual respect between the two sides. I wonder sometimes if we've gotten past that point. Now, when I was younger and covering politics in New York City, intra-party fighting was entertainment and coming up covering New York, it was a form of blood sport. Now, with the divide that exists between moderates and progressives, younger and older elected officials and voters has gained new importance. So too has the right wing using the animus between the two sides as a bludgeon to use against either side in swing districts, but particularly to use against progressives. Evidence? Easy. Look at how Republicans have latched on to the defund the police mantra of some progressives, not all, but some. And they have used that as a bludgeon. And certainly that for them is one of the keys 
to swinging the House of Representatives back into Republican hands next year. Now, lose a few of those seats, those swing district seats, and the House becomes majority Republican. Even if this were not the case, the fact is the progressive call for defunding the police hurts, as does not going all in on voter suppression on the part of some moderates. There are progressives who will say the moderates just really haven't gone far enough in trying to stop repressive laws against voters in several states across America. Yet we ought to consider and remember a couple of things. Donald Trump and his minions seriously believe they can turn back the clock and bring their guy or someone just like him back to the White House. There are people like Ron DeSantis of Florida and Greg Abbott of Texas waiting in the wings to beat any of them, or in this case, both of them, will require an active, energized black voter base. Another thing to keep in mind is this. Many senior members of the Congressional Black Caucus, derided as moderates now, were themselves progressive insurgents when they were first elected. I've said before that my heart is with progressives. It's just part of my DNA, part of who I am. They're needed to push the party on a number of different issues and policy positions. Yet the moderates are also necessary. And I've come to this realization relatively late in life. Let me be honest about that. But the moderates are necessary to push those same initiatives forward. Long story short, progressives and moderates need each other. They can run against each other in primaries until the cows come home. And I have no problem whatsoever in strong contests, whether it be moderates versus uh, progressives or whatever, in primaries. The important work, of course, comes after the primary. Will Nina Turner now work hard with Chantel Brown? Although in this particular 11th district in Ohio, Republicans don't really have a shot at an upset. Uh, but at day's end, there needs to be unity. And who benefits from unity between moderates and progressives? The people who put both sides in office. And finally, Donald Trump didn't do too well when he tried to use the courts to overturn last year's election. His supporters who stormed the Capitol are trying to portray themselves as patriots. That's right, patriots and political prisoners. Want to know what the judges are saying? Stick around. This is The Intersection. You're at The Intersection with Mark Riley. It's what summer listening is all about. What's happening in your world? Is there an issue you'd like me to talk about? Hit me up with a comment on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. We've seen the construction of an alternate reality in the wake of the Capitol insurrection of January 6th of this year. We've seen the shooting of Ashley Babbitt turned into an act of martyrdom and people online talking about who murdered her. 
We've seen elected officials refuse to believe the stories of police officers who put their lives on the line to protect members of Congress. And that's particularly ironic since those cops put their lives on the line to save some of the very people who are now doubting their stories. Now we see those charged with crimes portrayed as patriots and those in jail portrayed as political prisoners. Of course, as you might expect, rogue polls like Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia and Matt Gates of Florida have taken up this cause. A group of these miscreants showed up the other day at the D.C. jail demanding to inspect the treatment of those who have been detained there. We've talked in previous episodes about the group delusion that fuels such nonsense. Well, it looks like the courts, at least in the short term, are not buying it. One U.S. district judge put it this way in the case of one Carl Dresch of Calumet, Michigan. He was not a political prisoner, said Judge Amy Berman Jackson. We are not here today because he supported former President Trump. He was arrested because he was an enthusiastic participant in an effort to subvert and undo the electoral process, end quote. Ironically, Dresch made a deal with prosecutors to plead guilty to a single misdemeanor count with four other charges, including one felony count, dropped. He'll be released based on time served. Some judges, in addition to rejecting the claims of patriotism and martyrdom, have criticized some of the deals made by prosecutors as being too light. Chief U.S. District Judge Burl Howell asked if the government had any interest at all in deterring future actions like the intersection. Now, as an example, check out Char Carl Dresch, sentenced to time served. He had a 2013 felony conviction for eluding police in a 145 mile an hour chase that ran through two states. Now, here's the kicker. Despite the ban on felon possession of weapons, this guy had a Russian SKS rifle, two shotguns, a Glock, and more than 100 rounds of ammunition. Thus far, of the 550 people charged in connection with the insurrection, 30 have pleaded guilty and six have been sentenced. From where I sit, those convicted have gotten off easy. Dresch faced charges that initially could have gotten him 20 years in prison. Instead, he's a free man. Am I the only one who sees something wrong with this? It's no wonder congressional clowns can let them get away with acting as though they're political prisoners. Don't forget, people lost their lives on January 6th. Three police officers have committed suicide since. And for what? Because a bunch of losers didn't like the outcome of an election and thought they could change it through force. And I might add, force of arms. I say, throw the book at each and every one of them. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.